0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. Fallout from last week's massive Rogers outage. And how to get older without getting old. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Now it's happening. California is going to make its own insulin. That's Governor Gavin Newsom announcing that California will begin manufacturing its own low-cost insulin to make it more affordable amid soaring prices for the life-saving medication. A nonprofit drug drugmaker will provide insulin for no more than $30 a vial. More than 8 million Americans with diabetes depend on insulin, but the high cost has led an estimated one in every four to ration or skip doses Due to soaring costs, back in 2019, a self-declared caravan of Americans bust across the Canada-U.S. border to buy affordably priced insulin here and raise awareness of the insulin price crisis in the U.S. More than a hundred healthcare professionals are challenging Canada's rejection of access to magic mushrooms to treat mental illness. They've requested a judicial review in federal court for access to psilocybin as part of their efforts to use the restricted drugs in psychotherapy. Health Canada has suggested the professionals create their own clinical trials, but doctors say these are costly and only meant for research, not therapy training. More than 300 bookstores have opened in the U.S. in the past couple of years, a revival that's meeting a demand. The death of bricks-and-mortar bookstores was widely predicted, following the popularity first of online ordering and delivery as well as online editions. And there was a further slump early in the pandemic. Experts say the business that's been traditionally overwhelmingly white has now become more diverse, Nearly 70% of store owners say their sales are higher than in 2019. Calling, texting, or emailing a friend just to say hello might seem like a small gesture, but it can have a powerful effect, according to new research. In some experiments, participants reached out to someone they considered to be a friend. In others, they got in touch with someone they were friendly with but considered a weak tie. Across all 13 experiments, those who initiated contact significantly underestimated how much it would be appreciated. The more surprising check-ins from those who hadn't been in contact recently tended to be especially powerful. A hundred and ten years after the fact, Native American athlete Jim Thorpe has been reinstated as the sole winner of two gold medals in the 1912 Olympics. Thorpe easily won the decathlon and pentathlon, the only athlete ever to win both events, but had his medals stripped a year later after the International Olympic Committee learned that he'd been paid $2 a game to play minor league baseball in 1909 and 1910. He died in 1953 without getting the medals back. In 1982, the IOC recognized their error and acknowledged him as co-champion. Now, he's finally alone at the top of the podium. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Last week's massive Rogers outage left more than 12 million Canadians without access to everything from the Internet to emergency services and banking. The government is demanding a plan to ensure it won't happen again. Author and pollster Daryl Bricker says the fallout goes beyond communications and points to a wider breakdown of the basics. First, let's deal with what happened since that massive outage last week. The minister, Francois Philippe Champagne, called the CEO on the carpet in a closed door meeting, and a House of Commons committee is investigating. So, is that theater or is it real?
2: Probably a little bit of both. I mean, uh, the uh, realities of the Canadian. Marketplace are such that uh, there really isn't a lot of competition, so there's only one other option for most uh, for most people um, so uh, even if the government decided to get uh, very um, uh, direct with uh, with Rogers, um, you know pushing them into a corner isn't necessarily going to lead to uh, uh, any greater options uh, for Canadians.
1: as you know, it is a total pain to change this stuff. Do you think that uh, a lot of people will do that?
2: At the moment, there's probably a, a fair amount of uh, uh, shopping around going on, where people are thinking about maybe uh, making a bit of a change. But as you know, time goes on, uh, the, the stickiness of uh, you know the provider that you have, given the difficulty of changing from one to the other, may be a, a deterrent for people who are, are interested in uh, in moving. But you know, this is about a bigger question about uh, rather than just you know who your supplier is. Uh, it's it's more about you know how we get suppliers in the marketplace, and at some point, probably there needs to be a conversation about that. What the the outage did was expose people to the vulnerability that existed in their lives as a result of being in one, uh, being with one supplier and optimizing um, the, uh, um, the the cost of what you were getting. Essentially, what it meant is you're completely dependent on one thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if you're starting to see some people uh, start thinking about maybe what their backdoor options might be. And maybe they set up something, maybe uh, somebody in their family gets uh, you know, a phone with another provider or whatever, so they're not uh, completely uh, on the hook uh, if, if something goes down.
1: Now, you've been saying that this is more than a telecom outage. It points to a kind of breakdown of the basics in, in our society.
2: Yeah, it really does. I mean, when you start thinking about everything from, uh, you know, air travel through to, uh, uh, you know, healthcare care and, you know, um, access to emergency rooms, all these things that we kind of uh, took for granted as, you know, being really easy have all of a sudden started to become less reliable and harder. Uh, and there's all sorts of explanations for it, but a lot of it ladders up into things like, for example, the regulatory market that we find ourselves in with telecoms. Or what the government has decided to spend public funds on to support, uh, you know, the exposure that we have to, uh, you know, a couple of significant national air carriers and the travails of, of what's happened to them uh, through the results of the pandemic. So there's there's a bunch of things here that are really frustrating for Canadians, and what we're seeing is what it's done is is pushed down their confidence in institutions and just a general mood. People are not feeling good right now, and they're not feeling like things are working.
1: I want to drill down even further. So at the municipal level, there are also basic things that don't work. Overflowing garbage cans, washrooms that aren't open, and on and on it goes. Uh, does that give people a sense that, hey, if, if, if they don't care, I don't care?
2: We've got governments in this country that are spending a lot of time talking about social values and you know, uh, you know, big uh, big agenda items, global agenda items, you know, everything from climate through to, you know, equity of all different types. And, you know, people care about those issues. Really, fundamentally, they do. But what they also care about is that the potholes get filled.
1: Exactly. I mean, if, if you
2: can't, can't do that basic stuff, if you can't do the things that make a city, a province, a country work, the things that people absolutely believe are the responsibility of governments, you don't really earn the right to have these other conversations.
1: And then there's also the question that the governments, the people who work in the governments, they've been completely protected, full salary throughout the whole thing, while the people who are not getting those basic services they're supposed to deliver have not.
2: And this is another potential vulnerability. So you know, our public services at all levels of government have been doing nothing but growing. Over the space of the last, uh, you know, few decades, and you know, the, the lives that those folks live, you know, everything from the pensions that they have, through the work roles that they have, through the uh, you know the situations uh, uh, that uh, that that they live in, are not the same as people who are working in the private sector. They're not exposed to the vagaries of, uh, of of the marketplace like people who are working in the private sector. And things like you know telecom disruptions were probably like a nice snow day for people working in government. <laughs> Uh, whereas if you're running a restaurant or a convenience store, or, you know any sort of private sector organization, you were you were this this was a significant disruption for you, and the potential for the uh, you know uh, people who are not working in the public sector to start making demands in terms of uh, um, not only uh, the, the service that they expect to to come out of the public sector, but also the the size, the you know the expense, and all the rest of it. People are going to start asking. Why are we paying for this? And it sets up a potential for somebody in in politics to really use this as a platform to generate public support.
1: Where do we go from here? What do you see happening? What we're
2: seeing in politics these days is that that you know old governing consensus, that Laurentian consensus that used to be you know, that narrow range of policies between the left and the right, is starting is, is widened um, and public institutions that people would previously be just fine with that all of have starting starting to ask questions about and most importantly in all of this Libby is the general mood that all this adds up into is not positive at the moment people feeling the country's not on the right track
1: uh, that there needs to be some sort of a change Daryl Bricker thank you so much thank you that was Daryl Bricker author and chief executive officer at Ipso's public affairs libby's nimer and this is the zoomer weekend review coming up a new way to look at aging we'll talk about super aging
0: you're listening to the zoomer weekend review brought to you by carp offering members only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year find out more at carp.ca
1: It's a completely new way to view what aging is. Instead of a relatively short, unhealthy period of decline, aging now becomes a positive time of life, much longer, and with plenty of scope for personal development, accomplishment, and fulfillment. I talked to author and Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz about his book, which details how it's done. So what is super aging?
3: Well, to start with, let's look at what it's not. It's a reaction against the model of aging that has dominated our life for the past half century, which I call default aging in the book. And default aging is very simple. You go to school, you get a job, you retire, bang, midnight, 65th birthday, you're a retiree, you have 10 to 15 years of life ahead of you, not much time to do anything. It's going to be a period of decline. You're going to be old. The best you can do is be defensive, kind of manage your way, hopefully without a lot of pain and suffering, hopefully to a gentle finish, not that far ahead. And that model still dominates our language. It dominates our imagery. It dominates how we think of aging. Super aging starts with, wait a minute, when I hit 65, I don't just have 10 to 15 years left to go, I might have 20 or 30 years, and we're just getting started on on that. That's soon going to become 40 years. What am I going to do during that time? And it turns out that's a long enough time to not just stay alive, oh, look at how long I'm living, but to actually make changes and see it as a period of growth and development, analogous to all the other phases of our life. So you become a superager by saying, I've got a lot of time left, I want to do something with that time. I want to accomplish certain things. I intend to keep on being influential. I don't want to stop working. Uh, I've got stuff to do. And it's a very positive attitude, but it flows from the fact that it's actually possible to accomplish this. So it's the exact opposite of default aging. And that default aging model is rapidly retreating, uh, even though it persists in our language.
1: It's, that's interesting, first of all, are you a super ager?
3: I better be <laughs> I got big plans yes i I believe that um a hundred is within reach uh is For achievable you? yes why not absolutely okay, I don't know. I'm on a plan I'm on a plan to definitely reach a hundred and, and be active all the way through.
1: you know it's interesting that you said it persists in our language and it certainly persists in our institutions because I think on the ground, for instance, you know, that magic cutoff of 65, I think most people don't think 65-year-olds are old.
3: And yet, all the news reports are a new uh, cohort of baby boomers is hitting the age of retirement. We're going to be flooded by boomers retiring at 65. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? All these boomers are going to be retiring at 65. And it turns out that they're not. And you're quite right. It's not happening that way. But it, it persists. In our language, the Canadian government, as you know, gives out CPP, Canada Pension, also has something called OAS, Old Age Supplement. Security, yeah, Old Old Age Age Security. Security, Yeah, security, old age, OA. And the age at which that kicks in is not 85 or 90. It's a lot younger than that.
1: And the age at which your pension, Canada Pension, kicks in is 65. You can defer it until the age of 70, but not beyond that. Not beyond
3: that, no. Somehow 65 was enshrined, not just as the age of retirement, but as the age at which old age kicks in, and now you're an old person.
1: When we think of super aging, we think of those extraordinary people who are running marathons at the age of a 100 or teaching yoga classes or whatever they're famous for doing. But you seem to suggest then anybody can become a superager.
3: Well, I think it's true obviously there's exceptions that the un- for unfortunate illnesses or diseases or something that can strike a person, but generally speaking if you have decent health um And you have the right tools. And in our book, uh, the book I've done, we've identified seven, we call them the seven A's of super aging, which are uh, attitude, awareness, uh, activity, accomplishment, autonomy, attachment. And the last one is avoidance of certain things. So with those seven A's as your toolkit, uh, I think super aging is achievable by the vast majority of people. uh, But unlike... Default aging, where you kind of hope for the best, super aging does require an active mindset of i am got to keep track of all these things. I'm going to keep my eyes open for these various trends that are going on, these various opportunities and new tools, new science, new discoveries so that I'm availing myself of everything.
1: You talk about people having average health, but the fact is that most people, when they get to a certain age, they have Conditions, uh, often more than one.
3: Science is enabling longevity. It's curing more diseases or transforming them into manageable chronic conditions, and it's just getting more and more all the time. So the science is there to enable you to live longer. And the second thing is very important to understand who are the people doing the aging? Baby boomers are by far the largest group. Who are leading the charge, and baby boomers who are a very type A generation, a uh, hard-driving generation, on the one hand, benefiting from an influx of all these new technologies and medical treatments and other techniques that enable this. And you get the two together, whoop, you got a new generation called Superagers.
1: David Kravitz, thanks so much.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me, Libby. I Really appreciate it.
1: That was David Kravitz. His book, Super Aging, getting older without getting old will be out in the coming months. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.